So I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and, sometimes, interview special guests. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. In the process of doing research for my novel, and producing this podcast, I've had the good fortune to connect with some lovely people with some very interesting things to say. One such person is Cora Buhler, who, in her home nation of Germany, teaches German as a foreign language and serves as a professional translator. She is also an author of fiction in a wide variety of genres, including my beloved sword and sorcery, and her writing is enhanced by her keen scholarship of 20th century genre fiction, particularly the pulp magazines of the 30s, which laid a foundation for so much of what we enjoy today. She's also an active participant in the Hugo Awards, twice nominated herself, while paying close attention to contemporary genre writing. I really think more people need to read and listen to Cora, so I'm having her on the show today. Even if you already know of Cora and her work, odds are pretty good you'll enjoy the insights she shared with me on her writing origins, career, and more. And here we are with Cora. Hi, Cora. Hi, Oliver. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. It's nice to finally uh, get to meet you and, and see a moving face instead of a little avatar floating along the Whetstone Tavern Discord. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, this is fun. I like how I'm getting to meet more and more people off there uh, through the show. Luckily, so many of you are talented and interesting people worth having on. So uh, why don't we just go straight to the root of things? Where exactly would you say uh, your creative writing began or really kicked into gear? Well, um, I mean, I've been telling stories and uh, making up stories pretty much all my life uh, from very early age on. And um, eventually I started writing them down. Um, well, I mean, uh, I, I tried writing uh, Enid Blyton Pestige. Yes, wonderful. <laughs> In uh, elementary school, which I think never went, went beyond three or four pages. And um, I started writing more seriously when I was 15 or 16 years old. I tried to also, well, I, I tried a couple of things. I tried to, I was compo wanted to compose and write an opera, <laughs> which also ah. never went anywhere. I think I probably still have the, the lyrics somewhere <laughs> for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, the first things was, um, I liked science fiction, so I started writing science fiction and fantasy. And yes, then uh, I started getting more serious when I was at university. I took creative writing classes um, and started submitting to magazines with um, very varying success. Largely because I didn't write what was fashionable at the time. And yes. Yeah, I mean, that is tricky. Everybody tells you not to write toward the trends. But then, <laughs> you know, the trends are what are getting sold. So it's always kind of a, also, a tug of war. It was not all that easy living in Germany and uh, writing for the English because um, Germany had pretty much no science fiction and fantasy market. You could write for these, um, these um, well, the sort of dime novels, little magazines with brand name characters like Perry Roden, who's a spaceman. And there's a John Sinclair, who's a ghostwriter. You can write that. But mm. um, at the time... In the 1990s, early 2000s, there was almost no German fantasy market except for maybe a few media tie-ins and those magazines. Because the publishers preferred to translate mostly American and British authors 
who were already proven successes, instead of taking a chance on a German unknown. This has changed by now, by the way. It's gotten a lot better. Okay. So I just started writing in English and trying to sell whatever I could. And of course, um, that also was a bit of a problem because um, in the time when they still had snail mail submissions, everything took ages. My first publication was actually in the University Literary Magazine, oh, cool. which we had at the time, which must have been uh, it's over 20 years ago now, I think. And yeah, so here I am. And then self-publishing came along and I started self-publishing first with some things I'd gotten the rights to back and then I enjoyed the process. Well, and some of what you mentioned there brings me to my next question, which is, you know, uh, certainly for an ignorant Canadian over where I am, uh, I'm left wondering how did someone growing up in pre and early internet Germany wind up falling in love and even have the opportunity to fall in love with the American pulp? Okay, well, um, first of all, um, I haven't always lived in Germany because my dad had one of those jobs. He's a naval architect where he had to travel a lot. So I lived in Singapore. I lived in the U.S. for, but I was very small when I lived in the U.S. I was only five. So that was uh, the only thing I read there were little golden books. <laughs> but then I lived in Singapore and I lived in Rotterdam. So I did have some international exposure. That's also why I learned English very early. As for the pulps, we did have an import bookstore in my town, which had um, basically it was two spinner racks of imported genre novels. And it was a mix up of uh, crime novels, science fiction and fantasy, romance, whatever. Of course, I always picked the science fiction and fantasy and sometimes the crime novels. So um, I, I encountered a lot of what was originally pulp SF in the and fantasy via this, those spinner racks, because it was a lot of, they had, Asim, they had stuff like Asimov and Edgar Rice Burroughs and everything, and fell in love with it. And later I figured out where they came from, and um, I did have a sort of affinity for the pulps, because we still have pulps of a sort in Germany. We have dime novels. Oh, okay. And they're still published and still exist uh, these days, not as successful as they used to be. And those dime novels were everywhere when I was growing up. And they were very, very bad for you. Teachers would keep telling you how very, very bad those dime novels were. So, of course, they were irresistible, <laughs> which is also why I first got interested in sword and sorcery, because Conan, Conan was very, very bad. Conan is very, very, I didn't, I, all I knew about Conan was he's a barbarian. He's played by Arnold Schwarzenegger and he's very, very bad for you. It's very bad. <laughs> if you read him, he's, uh, he glorifies violence. It's very bad. So, yeah, of course I had to read it. <laughs> yes. It was um, German 1970s pop culture criticism where everything was very, very bad for you. Stephen King was also very, very bad for you. So guess what everybody read? <laughs> and so I had a sort of affinity for this. And I had also via import bookstores access to nonfiction books like the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction and similar books which I really saved up my pocket money to buy because those books were useful. They told you what authors would be interesting to read and what films would be good to watch. And some of them had photos of pulp covers, which looked really, really intriguing, except that, of course, I had no way of ever seeing one of those. Then I got on the internet and you could at least, even the early internet, you could get, uh, well... Illegal scans, uh, probably, and some stuff from early Gutenberg and illegal scans of Shadow and Spider Pulps and Doc Savage and all those things. So I finally got to read them and also learn more about the production method and was really intrigued. And yes, that's a fascination which has continued to the present day. And of course, nowadays it's easier than ever to get your hand on scans of actual pulp. So actual magazines are still not easy to find here simply because um, they almost never ended up on our shores. They did a few of them. I mean, we know that Werner von Braun was religiously reading the American science fiction parts, even while he was building the V2 rocket. 
No one quite knows how they got in, but somehow how he managed to get his American science fiction pubs delivered throughout World War Two. And <laughs> he was yes, he was Werner von Braun and his uh, his pals were reading the same pulp magazines that the guys of the Manhattan Project were reading, probably at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so what a wonderful image. I mean, well, wonderful maybe is a strong word with anything. Yeah, I mean, him, I mean, you can imagine sitting there in his, his office and reading his pub and, and the Nazis actually put, I don't know how they managed this. This I think it was via Scandinavia or some neutral country, but somehow they got their hands on American pulp magazines to deliver to Werner von Braun, who really, really desperately wanted to read them. <laughs> I guess they, they figured, well, maybe it's inspiration. I don't know. And he was just having fun enjoying the, you know, the stories, I'm sure. I, I it's just, just, yeah, wow. I love that. And I love what you were saying a moment ago about how, um, it reminds me of something I think you might enjoy, which is I uh, talked about the scans of the early internet pulp, you know, stuff and how like you couldn't really get them legitimately anyway. It makes me think of something I have been hearing lately when people talk about, uh, pirating video games from more than like, 10, 15 years ago, because contemporary companies like Nintendo increasingly makes it harder and harder to get a hold of a lot of their old games. And so these game pirates will say, well, we're not stealing at this point, we're archiving, you know, we're keeping this medium that we love alive. And I would say that's the same thing going on with the quote unquote illegal scans of those pulps. It's not like you could go anywhere in North America and buy most of them anyway, right? I mean, they've all been out of print for heaven knows how many decades for the most part. So yeah, like it's just, yeah, that's, that's kind of neat. You never, you never know how you're going to get your magazines. Yeah. I mean, video games are really in danger of, of vanishing simply because the hardware is increasingly getting uh, impossible to get. Well, exactly. And, you know, a friend of mine nearly uh, wound up working at the National Archives in Canada in Ottawa. And he told me from what, what he learned in his schooling, one of the major challenges at the archives is just keeping a few like Betamax players and other oddball, you know, media things mm -hmm. running because it's the only way they can access so much. Uh, you know, every few years it's like, oh, this is the wave of the future. And then the waves of the future become the waves of the past. But we still want to read what was said during those waves. Uh, <laughs> I still have a zip drive somewhere. It was very expensive and I was so happy to have it because uh, it had so much more storage space. I could actually put all my stories on that zip drive instead of just uh, putting on like uh, 10 stories and then having like 10 different disks. But uh, if I had to read it, I will have to switch on a very, very old computer and hope that the drive still works. Yeah, no, I remember Zip Drives. I am concerned for the day when we will stop having even like CD, DVD drives. Uh, you know, like, I mean, most computers don't come with them anymore, but at no, least. No, no. My PC does not have a CD drive. I have an external drive. Hmm. And uh, when I want to use it, I have to either plug out the microphone or I have to take out my USB stick uh, because I still need it when I'm teaching German. They, all the German books still come with CDs yeah. for the audio files. Oh, dear. Oh, well. But but uh, in the meanwhile, luckily, we do seem to have our ways of getting a hold of these older stories that we enjoy. And you touched upon it briefly there, but could you maybe, since it was the genre that's responsible for you and I meeting online, uh, give us a little more detail about what was your sword and sorcery origin story? What were the, the tales that you fell in love with and how did you find them? I guess my first contact with the genre was probably via the Thunder the Barbarian and Masters of the Universe cartoons, which of course came out when I was exactly at the right age to watch them. And I watched them a lot and uh, they did not originally air in Germany but uh, my dad was working in Rotterdam in the Netherlands at the time and Rot Germany you have to know had only three TV channels until 1985 and I lived in a rural area so um, I did not have more than three TV channels until 1989 and it was the 27th of February in 1989 that we got private television and that we suddenly got I was think it was two extra channels and I was 
absolutely over the moon. It was the best thing that happened in 1989. And I mean, you know, something else really important happened yeah. in 1989, <laughs> which was great. And uh, but uh, getting this, but this was really. It was liberation because those private TV channels, they showed all sorts of American shows, which the German channels had not been showing. And cartoons were very, very difficult to watch. But luckily, my dad worked in Rotterdam and he had cable TV in his flat and they had Sky Channel. And Sky Channel out of the UK was broadcasting uh, cartoons every morning back then, including master, all of the stuff, Masters of the Universe, Mask, Jam, all of them. And yes, I watched all of them religiously. Yes, and of course, I knew about Conan by Osmosis simply because, yes, he was played by Arnold Schwarzenegger in a movie. It was very, very bad for you. It was very violence glorifying. Mm -hmm. Of course, I needed to read him. And then also the Netherlands have a big comic culture shared with France and Belgiums, and they don't have a lot of superhero comics. They have science fiction comics, a lot of historical comics, adventure comics, and they had, of course, sword and sorcery. So there was one called Arya, which I loved about a female warrior character. There was one called Storm. Of course, and if you try to see Storm comic, you get a Marvel character. I was going to say, yeah. But yeah. Um, yes, yeah. yes, it was called Storm. It was a sort of alternate world sword and sorcery, sword and planet thing, and there was GitHub of Alizar, and there were lots of those, often with female characters, and uh, I usually did not buy them because, of course, I didn't have that much money. I was, a, I was a teenager, but I just went into the shops and read them there, and the people in the shops let me read them. I think this was also how I first encountered Lovecraft and Lovecraftian imagery via some comic. And interesting, whenever I'm in the Netherlands today, and when I see a shop from that chain, I always go in and buy a comic because now I can afford it. And there's always interesting comics to buy. And it's also a thank you for yeah letting this little girl read in their shop, <laughs> even though they must have known I normally didn't buy. Occasionally, I did buy something, usually a more expensive book when I had saved up enough pocket money to buy one. Oh, well, I mean, I've always got a soft spot for the store owners who understand that for some people, they need to be a bit, little bit of a library. And they're creating, you know, people who love reading by doing that. So they'll come back when they've got money and buy some books, just like you did. Yeah, I encountered Fritz Leiber first, also in Rotterdam. It was a bookshop called Donnerbuchen, which was an amazing building, which I think must have been designed by Time Lords because uh, it had like, um, it was almost floating spilling platforms around the central courtyard. Must have been built sometime in the 50s or 60s. From the outside, it had maybe four stories. From the inside, it had like 10 or 12. So I say it must have been designed by Time Lords. And it was a huge bookstore, the hugest, the biggest one I had ever seen, all like 10 stories. And they had a big English language book section, which was fairly far down. So I just uh, grabbed a random science fiction and fantasy paperback. Then I either sat down on the stairs or if they chased me away from the stairs. No, they didn't chase, but I was in the way. <laughs> way <laughs> something they said. One or two platforms up, there was a leather lawn chair, so I settled down there if no one was using it. Oh, nice. And they just let me read it. And this is where, how I first read Fafat in the Grey Mauser, long before I actually bought one of the books. I remember they bought a really crappy media tie-in to something at that shop, which I liked at the time, which is now like, okay, probably should have gone for the, for the Fafat and Grey Mauser book instead, but uh, I read it anyway. Well, I mean, that's how you learn, right? I, I I must admit, I still have some of my old comics and a lot of them are like bad movie adaptations. And of course, I'm like, why did I? Well, okay, there's like a giant robot. That's why I liked it when I was, you know, younger. Sure. <laughs> you know, your taste change and it's how you discover it, right? So looking toward the future of that genre, yesterday, I could see uh, you mentioned on the Discord that you had listened to it. So we both listened, it seems, to the Sword and Sorcery Roundtable 
on the Rogues in the House podcast, uh, which I will link to in the show notes, listener, but you don't have to have heard it. All you need to know is some people who know what they're talking about, about the genre discussed, mainly the question of how do we keep this thing alive and help it thrive and grow? Uh, I'm curious, I'm sure you have your own thoughts. What would be your answer to that? You know, Why do you think people should be reading Sword and Sorcery or even creating, heaven forbid, new works in the genre and trying to push this thing forward? Well, I mean, Sword and Sorcery is a genre of, and I know you're also a big fan of Flame and Crimson by Brian Murphy, which is a wonderful book. Please, everybody, buy it, read it. It's not very expensive. It's a great nonfiction book. I nominated it for the Best Related Work, Hugo, last year, but of course, it didn't make it through. Oh. But it's a wonderful book. Uh, please go and read it, everybody. And one thing he says is Sword and Sorcery is a genre of the heroes are outsiders. They're not the chosen one. They choose themselves. I mean, Conan, yes, Conan does become king, but basically he chooses himself. He's not the chosen one. He chooses himself and they're all self-made people. They're usually marginalized people, outsiders. So this actually ties into a conversation we're having in the genre right now about marginalized characters of, of any kind of marginalized identity. I mean, of course, Conan is, well, he's Sumerian, which um, who are basically Celtic people. And of course, Irish people were heavily discriminated against at the time the Conan stories were written, which is something that I think we often forget, at least I forget it these days. But when I was reading a lot of 1940s science fiction and fantasy for the Retro Hugos two years ago, I always kept coming across those more or less stereotypical Irish people and was thinking, why are there all those Irish people in space? But of course, it was a case of this was their diversity. They were saying like, look, this Irish person can go to space too. This was uh, similar to how we would get the token black person a couple of years later. Yeah, the token Irish is a weird one, eh? My dad's reading a Vance novel from the early 50s, and he's like, it's fun, this guy O'Shaughnessy, and then they like, that's fine, but everybody <laughs> makes a big deal out of it. <laughs> yeah, uh, you have all these token Irish people there. That was the first they went. They, we don't really get the, to we, sometimes we get the token guy from Brooklyn who may or may not be Jewish, but it's not never really explained. But I mean, most of the writers were Jewish. Apparently having an openly Jewish character would have been too shocking and... Uh, so you do have characters of color occasionally and sometimes also quite openly. Also, Fafat and Grey Mauser, a lot of people miss that Grey Mauser is not white. He's Middle Eastern. Mm. In Adept's Gambit, where they're in the current day, we learn that he's from Tyre in modern day Lebanon. So he is Middle Eastern and he's also he's described as not white. Yeah, but of course, like a lot of the covers, um, you know, for the Earthsea series, uh, they, they wind up making him white on the cover, unfortunately. Yeah, It'd be nice everybody to have that gets updated. to be white on the covers. I mean, Eric John Stark, the Sword and Planet hero by um, Lee Brackett, he's black and very dark-skinned. He's a man of color. Of course, they have this uh, ridiculous thing with, oh, it, he's not really black. It's just the solar rays on Mercury, which was <laughs> terribly common in science fiction. Well, into the, I mean, I've seen this in the 1980s. This, oh, but she's not really black. She's just black because of the solar race yeah okay <laughs> superman gets to fly and be super strong but from solar rays but no cover artist until the early 21st century ever portrayed him correctly he's always white and sometimes even conan is sometimes portrayed as blonde conan is dark-haired it's only in every single story yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously it tells us more about the artists uh, or maybe the publishers, uh, you know, than, uh, than about the characters and the authors. I mean, and on Fafford and Grey Master, am I, am I remembering correctly? Isn't it uh, Fafford is sort of all but explicitly 
put as bisexual and I believe the uh, two greatest thieves in Lankmar sort of slipped in there that like he's fine with men too even if we don't see him with a male partner during the series so yeah you can find these little things poking through in the old stories and I, I it's it's nice to acknowledge that as well as look to you know new stories I personally would love to see you know the story's got to be good too obviously but I would love to see like a trans sword and sorcery hero what might that be like you know that would be amazing I think it, and mm. also you could make it work I mean um, a trans warrior woman or also um, maybe a trans man who's perhaps made fun of for being not quite as masculine as the others, but you can make that work. Even if it was never directly addressed, just having the representation, right? Yeah. And in times past, of course, it was also, let's just say, um, easier because people just, um, there are plenty of recorded instances of women who dressed up as men to join armies and fight. And sometimes it was just patriotic fervor for I want to free Germany or Russia or whatever from Napoleon. And some of them were apparently trans women. And uh, in many cases, no one knew their true gender until they, there was one case of a woman in the Napoleonic War. And they only figured out she was a woman when she was wounded and they took her to the, um, to the field hospital and the doctor cut off her uniform and yes, they got a surprise. This was a woman. Unfortunately, she did not survive her injuries, but she was uh, highly honored and inspired a couple of other women to also dress up as men and go to war. Some of these were not trans women, but in this case, she might have been one. We don't know, of course. It was a different time. Right, but it certainly suggests that another element uh, from Brian Murphy's definition of sword and sorcery comes into play here, not just the outsider hero, but also a historical inspiration. You know, it's not, uh, yeah, it's not something that was invented 10 minutes ago, was it? Something that's always been with us as a species. And so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, it's, I mean, we know that trans people have existed in all times, and some, uh, some cultures had uh, provisions for them, others don't. You can find quite a few trans people in Iran of all places, because for some reason you can get gender reassignment surgery in Iran while same-sex relationships are banned and punishable by death. But you can get gender reassignment surgery because for some reason the mullahs believe that apparently occasionally Allah makes a mistake and someone ends up in the wrong body and of course they will correct it. And oh. so, I mean, no one assumes that Iran of all places will, be, will have trans people, but uh, they do have trans people. Or that they would facilitate trans people's needs. Yeah, I, yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, um, other than, uh, you know, what we've addressed a little bit there, which is increased representation of people who are not always shown in those stories or were not shown very much in decades past, what, I, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things. It's a big question. They spent an hour and 45 minutes talking about it over on Rogues in the House. But, <laughs> you know, when you, when this conversation comes up, and that was certainly not the first time, and I'm sure you've participated in a few yourself of these conversations, what is the most glowing, glaring thing in your mind is like, okay, if we do anything to try and make sword and sorcery become a bigger thing and have more people get into it, what is the one most key thing to you that you think needs to happen? I think it really would help if we had a genuine, huge sword and sorcery hit. Also marketed as sword and sorcery. I mean, we do have the Witcher TV series, which is especially the early short stories are pretty much pure sword and sorcery, but it's not marketed as sword and sorcery. It's marketed as a sort of like Game of Thrones, mm. which almost put me off watching it because um, I had read the books and liked them, but um, was like a, not another would-be Game of Thrones. And it's its own thing. And uh, we had uh, the Shira cartoon, which was really, really successful among the sort of people who would never go and read a Conan book. Mm -hmm. Most of them. I mean, I'm, I have some friends who both read Conan and liked the Shira cartoons, but that's rare. And we have the Masters of the Universe cartoons, which is uh, Revelations, which was amazingly good for what it was. I mean, 
was a cartoon based on a almost 40 year old toy line and they did some really great things with the characters and also went back to the classic sword and sorcery inspirations which if you know them you could recognize them mm-hmm. and if you get more of that that would really help i think I don't think we will see something again like the huge success of the Lancer Conans in the 60s. It was already simmering under the surface. We had been having a sword and sorcery revival since the late 50s, early 60s. That's when Fafat and Grimauser came back from retirement. Mm-hmm. That's when Roger Celesny and John Jake started writing sword and sorcery. And Michael Moorcock started writing Elric in the early 60s. So there was an atmosphere, but the Lancer Conans kicked it into overdrive. Suddenly... Together with the illegal Lord of the Rings paperback edition, which is, of course, not sword and sorcery, but it showed people, look, people are willing to read fantasy because earlier science fiction and fantasy was this weird uh, thing which occasionally popped up as well. Mm. And uh, I don't think we will really see this again. I mean, we have a good fantasy market. It's still a niche, but it's a solid market. Right now, it seems to be Grimdark is winding down, but it's still strong. And Grimdark is at least related occasionally to sword and sorcery. Traditional epic fantasy is not so great anymore unless written by Brandon Sanderson, who is still incredibly popular. What's one thing I don't like about those books is how bloated they are. Traditional epic fantasy. So another selling point for Sword and Sorcery could be, hey, this is short and sweet and you can read it on your lunch break or you can read a story in a day or a longer one in a weekend and it's fine. But yes, people seem to want long books. It's a soul. Okay, apparently the book, if it's longer, it's worth more my money even if it's just um, endless petting. Yeah, you're buying it by the pound like a chunk of ham instead of a... <laughs> yeah, no, I know. And I think like what Howard Andrew Johnson's doing with his current work, he's shopping around, and he mentioned on Rogue, so I don't feel bad mentioning it here, the Hanavar uh, collection. I think he's onto something there. It's like, okay, give people uh, a big pound of ham, but what they don't realize is it's actually kind of a layer cake of a whole bunch of really beautiful little slices of sword and sorcery that add up to the page count that maybe you're looking for. I mean, uh, fix-up novels are a thing in science fiction and fantasy. Fix-up novels have been a thing since the 1950s, mm-hmm. or mosaic novels, because the term fix-up novel is a shitty term, and I think mosaic novel is now the preferred one. It comes from the literary fiction scene. At any rate, that's what my pal Jason Sanford uh, said recently. And mosaic novel is a nice term because we have several smaller stories which combine together to make a bigger story. I've always liked this episodic form of older science fiction because I grew up on those mosaic or fix-up novels. Stuff like Foundation or iRobot and, of course, also the early Conan collections were fix-ups with, uh, unfortunately, added Elsbrecht de Camp and Lynn Carter stuff. Yeah, no, I've, I've talked about that a bit on the podcast before, but it's this funny thing where, like, uh, August Derleth, uh, you know, as writers, they made great editors. Uh, and, uh, and whatever you think of what they did in, on the page uh, sometimes, especially with the butchering of Howard stuff, they're why we're still reading them, arguably. So, you know, they're like these kinds of midwives who you would never want to be mothers. Um, <laughs> exactly. a weird metaphor. <laughs> No, Lynn Carter was a wonderful editor. He was a great editor and he did a lot of great work bringing old fantasy, not just sword and sorcery, but all sorts of fantasy back into print. Mm -hmm. And we should honor him for that and also for publishing these um, year's best fantasy and what was it called, flashing swords or sword and sorcery collections. He did great work there. Absolutely. But he was also, I'm sorry, a terrible writer. I had the misfortune of reviewing his attempt at a space opera, which was basically foundation. As if written by Robert E. Howard, which sounds wonderful.
wonderful in theory, but in practice, it was just utterly terrible. Oh, dear. Okay, I was laughing out loud and sharing the excerpts from the book with friends like, you won't believe what, what's written here. You won't believe this. I can believe it. I read his World's End series in a similar vibe, but I kind of got into it. I was like, this is like a berserk, weird He-Man with a giant robot bird called literally uh, a bazonga. And I was like, oh, just one? Okay. thought those usually came in pairs. Eh. Anyway, um, <laughs> we could easily talk about Sword and Sorcery for another, you know, 30 minutes to an hour or more, I'm sure. Probably the rest of the day, really. But you don't just write Sword and Sorcery. Far from it. Uh, a character of yours who really caught my eye is Richard Blakemore, a.k.a. The Silencer. Could you please tell us a bit about who he is, what makes him stand out, and what inspired you to create him? Okay, Richard Blakemore is a pulp fiction writer living in the 1930s in New York City. And he's a century baby, so he was born in 1900, because, of course, every kind of pulp hero at the time had to be born in 1900. So he's a century baby. Of course, he took part in World War One. He had great adventures in the 20s, and now in the 30s, he's living in New York City, and he's writing pulp fiction. Yes, he's also writing sword and sorcery and all sorts of genres, but he's mainly writing a sort of hero pulp story in the vein of the, the shadow or the spider and Doc Savage. But the clue in this, his character is called the silencer, who is, uh, well, he defends the downtrodden and fights evil and injustice. He has a, a black cape and he has a, a slouch. He has a typical fedora that all of those characters wear. He has a steel mask with an inbuilt night vision gadget, a very early one, because infrared did not exist actually in the 1930s. And uh, the clue is that Richard Blakemore does not just write those stories, he actually lives them because he dresses up as a character and goes on missions to, well, help people. As for why I created him, um, I was, like I said, I, I'm into, I was interested in the pulps. I had seen pictures of the Shadow and the Shadow movie came out sometime in the 19, late 1990s or mid-1990s, the one with Alec Baldwin, yeah, well, which is uh, yeah. a lot more fun than it has any right to be. And I don't know if you've seen the covers of those spider pulps, which had by Rudolf Belaski, which are absolutely fabulous covers of beautiful women being menaced by terrible death traps. And of course, those things were absolutely fascinating. So I had heard about the characters, but of course, um, I couldn't read the adventures until I got on the internet and suddenly I could um, find scans and I even got a bunch of reprints of spider pulps. Also, I learned a lot about the authors, for example, Walter Gibson, the creator of The Shadow, who wrote two full, okay, short novels, but they were still full novels, even by Hugo standards, so over 40,000 words, two in a, in a month, and he was basically typing all the time, and a lot of these people also had a fascinating background. Some of them were World War I veterans, or Walter Gibson was a stage magician, so... I was fascinated by those people and I ran across the famous Lester Dent Pulp Fiction master plot and thought, okay, I want to try this out. Let's imagine it's 1936 and I'm writing a pulp story. And then I said, okay, I need a hero. And so I came up with the silencer character. Originally, he was just a rich playboy about town, which Richard Blake must still pretends to be sometimes. But I thought it would be much cooler if he actually were a pulp writer. So yes, this is how the silencer was born. He has appeared in uh, 10 or 11 complete stories by now, ranging from short story to novel at length. And um, there's also an omnibus edition available of the stories published so far. Cool. Well, of course, I will be linking to uh, your website and where people can find these lovely stories uh, in the show notes and on the website. I love the concept. I, I don't know how familiar you are with the Batman animated series from the early 90s, but... Oh, I watched it a lot. Telling, oh, great. So maybe you remember in that telling of Batman's legend, uh, he had a big love for a pulp hero called... Uh, he was more in the serials, I think, than the magazines, serial films. Uh, the Great Ghost. Oh, yeah. I remember that. That was, a great, uh, that was a great episode about the Great Ghost. 
Yeah, what a great bit of continuity in a way, because all these characters that you mentioned, like the Shadow and so on, uh, they were absolutely the precursors. They're why we have Batman. And so it was fun for them to acknowledge it in the series, but it's also working backwards, I think, anyone hearing this who's kind of like, oh, that sounds, that sounds cool. Well, if you enjoyed Batman, I mean, it's not going to be identical, of course, it's its own thing that Korra's made, but uh, you know, I, I've read uh, a little bit of it, and I think it's worth going back into the old stuff and reading the new stuff, evoking the old stuff, because it's the roots of stuff that we all know and love. And there's a new Batman movie coming out the 25th in the last 10 years. Uh, you know, <laughs> And it comes from this stuff. This is the rich base of it. Yeah, Batman's absolutely inspired the spider and uh, the shadow. I mean, um, the Batman film from 1989, the one with the first Tim Burton Batman, it basically steals the plot of a shadow novel from 1934. The whole plot was this, oh, all this, this poisoned cosmetics, which is, okay, in the shadow novel, the people just die horribly. They, they don't start looking like the Joker. But the plot is from, with the poisoned cosmetics, is a shadow novel. I was totally surprised when I read that. So it's a spider. It's a spider novel by Novel Page, who ah. also wrote Sword and Sorcery. But um, there absolutely are links to between those. And, of course, they were not the first. Sorrow came before, was created in 1917, I think. The earliest one, I think, was the Grey Seal, who was from the early 20th century. He's one of the earliest dual identity heroes. Something I really like about Blakemore is the fact that he's a writer. And then to you know add another layer to it, you have a, a sword and sorcery character, uh, Kerville, who is written by you ultimately, of course, but is essentially uh, is written by Blakemore. And so that made me think, and I was like, oh, gee, you know, you've got a character written by a character written by an author. Um when writing as Blakemore writing Kerville, I'm wondering, how do you balance your creative instincts, right? Maybe you're just in a moment of scene, you're like, oh, this should happen, you know, against the restrictions of writing as Blakemore, who himself is presumably trying to nail a certain voice appropriate to the 30s uh, sword and sorcery pulps. You know, is this a challenge or, or would you say Blakemore's voice is close enough to your own that it's not an issue? Like, how do you, how do you balance that? Um, it's a bit of a challenge sometimes, for starters, because I can't mention anything which happened after this, the fictional stories of, um, he has two sort of sources here, actually. There's Turvok, which is more Fritz Leiber style, except that Fafat and Grimauser did not come out until 1939. So, of course, the fictional Richard Blakemore may have known the real Fritz Leiber. He knows a lot of real pulp writers, and sometimes they're mentioned. He knows Lovecraft, he also knows Howard, they probably corresponded. So they do get mentioned on occasion, the real pulp writers. And uh, there's one story where he basically threatens John W. Campbell of astounding fame, only that the guy has a different name. <laughs> so, yes, that was a bit of fun to have. So he knows us, but he couldn't have read Fafan and Grimauser simply because they weren't out yet. And how I came to this was there's one story where Richard Blakemore, he's just uh, saved a woman from a gang and he's a little bit wounded. And he goes to a drugstore to patch up his wounds before going home and sees a new issue of Weird Tales and buys it. And... Uh, I picked out an issue for him to buy, and there was, it was one which had, I think it's an installment of Hour of the Dragon, and there's a Gerald of Laurie story, story, and there's a Lovecraft story, all in one issue of Weird Tales, and I have him use like, oh, I like those, those stories. Of course, he can't call them sword and sorcery, because the term, of course, wasn't invented until 1961. Yeah. So, he's like, oh, I like those stories, I would like to write one like that one day. And then I actually wrote a sword and sorcery story, the first Turbox story, and I wrote it very, very quickly on a very, very hot day in summer. And um, then I thought like, okay, maybe this is Richard Blakemore's lost sword and sorcery novel. And then I wrote a couple more about the same characters, especially 
originally was just a lone wandering barbarian Turok, but he picked up the, his first friend at the end of the first story, so he got his Grey Mauser character. Then they picked up two women, so it was suddenly a quartet, and uh, I thought then when I wanted to publish those stories, like, okay, why don't I just pretend they're, they're lost pulp stories from the 1930s written by this lost pulp character, and I'm just the editor who is re rediscovering them. As for challenges, well, I mean, mine are, I think, a bit more modern. One of the Corwell stories has a sex scene in it, which you wouldn't have found in the 1930s. But it needed to be there for the story. And the thing I write is like, oh, this is uh, the manuscript we discovered with the sex scene, which was cut out because it was censored in the 1930s. It's like the Howard manuscripts discovered in the trunk, which also we know that some things were cut out from them, not necessarily because of sex, but all of the cases where Howard more explicitly talks about sexual violence, most of them were in stories which were never published, which is interesting because apparently Franz was right, was also, he was very, very careful and he had to be about what he published. If you think about it, the most explicit things about sexual violence in the Conan or, or also Solomon Cain stories, most of them are not in stories which were actually published. So and they're fairly oblique because you couldn't really openly speak about it. It's amazing that C.L. Moore was able to get away with so much. I mean, Chamblot, the first Northwest Smith story, has, I think it's a two and, or two and a half page, which is basically a drug-induced tentacle sex scene. <laughs> in a, yeah, it's, that's what it is. And it was uh, published in 1934, I think, or 33. I have no idea how she was able to get away with it. But I understand that she did not want to use her full name. She always said she was afraid to lose her job at the bank. But it wasn't just because, oh, she has a different income. But, oh, this woman who's not married is writing about sex and apparently drugs. And, of course, that would have been quite shocking at the time. Yeah, now what you're describing there is certainly more explicit than the uh, largely metaphorical uh, violence of her Jure stories. You know, yeah, the Jure stories are metaphorical because I think a rape scene would not have been and I did not quite get this when I was when I first read. I was like, okay, the guy kissed you. Yes, why don't you just kicking him in the nuts and or slap him or something, which is what we do. You don't have to kill him. That's a bit extreme. You don't have to go into the pits of hell for the most horrible way to kill him. <laughs> yes. As I reread them last year, I thought like, oh my God, this is actually a metaphor for sexual assault. He is a rape survivor. And it's actually, it's remarkably accurate. She has flashbacks and she also keeps having flashbacks in future stories. We have this, uh, this woman character, this woman warrior, yeah, coming to terms with a sexual assault. Uh, now, I, I could talk about Jarell all day because I love those yeah, stories. Yeah, she's amazing. So uh, if we bring it back to the voice issue, I, I do like that you mentioned you'll go more with the the ones that are, more, that are yours, not Blakemore's, so to speak. Uh, you'll make the decision based on what the story needs over what the genre maybe suggests uh, should happen. And I think that's definitely part of how we want to keep this thing alive and vibrant going forward because... I think if, you know, you just try and tick off a box, I mean, don't get me wrong, I also have the Lester Dent uh, story outline <laughs> formula in a folder. I'm going to play with that sooner or later. But if you, outside of those kind of fun exercises, are too beholden to a structure, then you're not making anything new, are you? So, yeah, but it can be so tempting in a scene to go, okay, well, I know I know what to do next because I know what always happened in those stories versus maybe your, your inside is telling you, no, 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 we need uh, an explicit sex scene or we need to have something else happen, you know, that they wouldn't do back then. Actually, I usually get away from even the Lester Dent. Whenever I try to write one, I usually get by, never get past the second turning point, and it just goes off in oh. it, into its own direction. Also, I have uh, people of color, which would have been not uncommon. There are more people of color in the, the pulps than you imagine. I have uh, hinted at uh, gay people in the Corval stories. 
sometimes I do get more modern because it's not the 30s anymore. In cases like the sex scene, I can always go like, okay, but this line was cut for the original pulp, but we found the original manuscript somewhere. I like that. I like the way it turns the story itself into feeling like a kind of lost treasure. Uh, I think that's a wonderful framing device. Um, Speaking of genre and adopting a voice, could you please uh, tell us sort of the, the brief pitch for what Galactic Journey is, how you became involved, and what you do as a participant? Because I have been particularly enjoying some of the columns you've put up recently. Yeah, okay. Galactic Journey is basically um, it's a science fiction fan scene and fantasy fan scene. And we cover all the things that the regular fan scenes do. So we review books and magazines, movies. We talk about comics. We talk about uh, science fact and real world science and space exploration. But there's a difference because Galactic Journey exists 55 years in the past exactly. So today is uh, February the 26th, 1967. And um, the Kommune 1, which Germans will know, they were sort of they were sort of alternative uh, hippie type commune, has just moved into their first flat in Berlin. And um, our chancellor is um, Kurt Georg Kiesinger, an ex-Nazi whom no one really likes or wants. And um, the 60s are really going to heat up in a couple of months, but right now it's quiet. Not even the starfighters are falling from the sky because they're grounded anyway. But uh, we st- we are having a lot of protests and they're. Uh, That's what's happening in, of course, there are two Germanys. We still have East Germany and the wall was built only six years ago. And sometimes I also talk about East Germany when I visit my aunt in East Germany. And of course, we have correspondents from all over the world. Most of the Galactic Journey crew are in the US, but we have someone from Australia. We have British correspondents. We have a Russian correspondent. So we have people from all over the world writing. And um, when we are writing for Galactic Journey, we live in the 1960s. So again, as with the Richard Blakemore stories, I can't mention anything that happened after the story, which was a difficult when I was reviewing the Lynn Carter book, because, which was so terrible, because I could not mention that he is a good editor, because he was not a good editor yet. Yet he, all he did was write a few columns for a, for a magazine about the fandom. And uh, he had written two novels by the time and a couple of short stories. So uh, I think I wrote something like, I hope he f- eventually finds something he's good at, but uh, writing is not it. <laughs> it yeah. Because I could not mention anything that happens later. And right now, of course, I'm reviewing the brand new Lancer Conans, which just came out. <laughs> I loved that column, by the way, including the, the one with, uh, I think it's Conan the Adventurer that has uh, People of the Black Circle, my favorite story in it. Yeah, it's um, Conan yeah. the Adventurer, which has People of the Black Circle. The first two Lancer Conans had three of the best stories. They had People of the Black Circle, and Conan's Adventure, and Conan the Warrior had Red Nails, and uh, P- Beyond the Black River. So that's uh, three of the best. Yeah, no, a solid volume. And I, I loved the framing device uh, of you reviewing it as someone there when it actually came out. And the temptation that must be strong sometimes, like, you know, people write a lot of period stories to wink at the future to come. As you say, I hope he becomes, you know, try something else. So, you know, that, that writing, maybe, maybe editing, who knows? Uh- <laughs> yeah, sometimes we do this. I mean, we had uh, we had Terry Pratchett's debut story, not me. One of my colleagues reviewed the mm-hmm. debut story of Terry Pratchett, published when he was 16. Oh, wow. And, uh, of course, then was like, oh, this is a very talented young man. I think we will hear more of him. Of course, we will hear more of him because he's Terry Pratchett. <laughs> we also had a, had a totally surprising debut story of Annie Proulx. I had no idea that he debuted in a science fiction magazine. I think it was a magazine of fantasy and science fiction, but I might be getting things mixed up. 
So she's a future Pulitzer Prize uh, winner. And we had her first story. It was also like, oh, this is a very talented person. We are not quite sure if it's a man or woman <laughs> because she used her initials, but uh, we know it's Annie Poole. <laughs> so it is always a bit of a temptation. Mm. And the funniest thing ever, I think, was when Ken, I was like, oh, I need to finish my Galactic Learning article. You know, Kennedy will be shot next Tuesday. It was like, okay, I just said <laughs> Kennedy will be shot next Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> We got to fit something in here before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because we did, uh, because we, of course, covered um, the Kennedy uh, assassination. It was the first year. I started when it was 1963. So it would have been mm. 19, 2018 in our time. And I've been reading before and um, commenting. And then Gideon Marcus, who runs uh, everything, and who's also a very good writer in his own right. He writes science fiction. Mm. And he also via Journey Press publishes old uh, out-of-print science fiction stories. He just had, we will have one coming out of forgotten stories, science fiction stories by women from the 1950s, which is coming out March 1st, so that's in two days. Oh, okay, cool. Well, I'll have to link that in the show notes. And meanwhile, listener, I actually interviewed Gideon Marcus for the other podcast I do, Unknown Worlds of the, Mer the Merrill Collection. Our subject was alternate histories, but of course, through that, we ended up talking quite a bit about this project. So if you want to learn more, uh, I will link that uh, when that episode goes up, which will hopefully be in the near future. Anyway, uh, in the meanwhile, as chance would have it, I've unintentionally threaded a theme through my interviews for this March. Linguistics. My other guest going up this month, Ryan North, has a degree in computational linguistics, which he happily takes advantage of in his work, most notably his reinvention of Marvel's Squirrel Girl as a student in that very discipline. How has first studying and now teaching linguistics fed into your writing? Well, um, I call myself an accidental linguist because I studied English and uh, at my university, you have to take linguistics classes when you want to study English, which is also okay. a good thing because you need to understand how language works. And then pretty much the first job I had after I graduated and after I got my MA was teaching introductory linguistics at the University of Fechter, which is a university you'll never have heard of. It's Germany's smallest university in a rural town. It has about 3,000 students. The town has maybe 35,000 people. And I was barely out of university and suddenly I was on the other side of the desk. Yes. So this is also why I call myself an accidental linguist. The good things about linguistics is, of course, that you learn how language works. Of course, I did try to create my own language. I think every aspiring <laughs> fantasy or science fiction also does. But um, a good thing is that you know about how language works and also how names work. And that, for example, someone named Julian with a couple with like three different apostrophes and someone named Odolphus are probably are not people from the same even remotely linguistic group or the same country. So, yes, I try to make sure that the names sort of fit. I usually pick a culture which I want to mine for names. So I make sure that the names are at least consistent, that these are people from the same culture unless they are supposed to explicitly be from a different culture. Do you find, uh, other than a creation of a world-building culture language, that kind of thing, does it affect, you know, do you sometimes look at the actual like, construction of one of your sentences and something, you know, you've learned in linguistics affects you, your editing of it? Do you go, well, hang on, this should actually be here because of, you know, what I learned? Yes, I see it does, of course. Um, I mean, you look at a sentence and think, okay, like this structure is clumsy or unpleasant or simply, okay, I've now started five sentences in a row with Korval was or Korval did this and Korval did that. So let's change it around a little, a little bit. Of course, if you're a linguist, you also sort of know how language works and what you can change around, which changes with the different languages. Mm -hmm. In German, it's easier to switch the, the, the objects and subjects and, every, and verbs around than it is in English. 
In English, the word order is a lot more rigid than in German. German allows you to switch everything around. So that's, of course, also a challenge to do. In general, I think, which is why everybody thinks should study linguistics, or at least know a little bit, it's always good to know about language and grammar and how they work and also how they differ. I mean, I'm also a teacher of German as I'm a translator and a teacher of German as a foreign language. And a lot of the students, they all come from different backgrounds. And uh, in a lot of cases, it's simply difficult to explain something, a concept which does not exist in their native language. And here I am over here with my one language I speak. I'm not even bilingual because I was terrible at French. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, yeah, but uh, also you were not born in Canada because I thought in Canada everybody at least had to learn both languages. Uh, that's the theory. The operating <laughs> practice is we all have French class up to a certain point when we can stop taking it if we want to in high school. And even those of us who go all the way through are not necessarily what you would call bilingual. It depends. Uh, it's honestly not terribly important unless you want to work in government or, or somewhere else that demands it. And even living in Ottawa, as I did growing up, a, a theoretically bilingual city, I, I was fine <laughs> not, not speaking French. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not, not proud of it, but yeah. Um, meanwhile, uh, we're getting to the end here. I just want to ask two quick questions of you. One would be, could you please tell us a little bit about Pegasus Pulp Publishing? And do you, through running that, have any advice for people out there looking to self-publish, you know, things to avoid lesser known venues than Amazon, which they might be overlooking, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I started self-publishing with um, originally a couple of short stories to which I'd gotten the rights back in 2011 to dip my feet in the pool. And okay, I needed a publishing name. So um, I thought, okay, what do I call my company? And uh, Actually, the Bullard family has a family crest and it's a Pegasus. Huh? And the Pegasus is, of course, the, the, well, it's, of course, it's a winged horse, but it's a mount of poets. And so I think, wow, that's cool. I will call it Pegasus Books or Pegasus Publishing. But there already was a company called Pegasus Books. So I said, okay, I'm Pegasus Pulp Publishing because I like pulps and I want to be sort of like the new pulps. So yes, that's how the company name was born. And um, I found that I do most things myself. I have um, better readers to go over the stories because it's good to always have a different set of eye on it. But um, I do the formatting, the cover design, I do everything myself. And by now it's an established process and I found I enjoyed it. So I also started self-publishing original works because a lot of the things I like to write were not really fashionable at the time. I publish as it's called wide, so I'm not Amazon exclusive. I never was. And actually, a large part of my sales come from outside Amazon. So you can basically buy my books wherever well I can I can get them. So you can get them at Apple Books, at Barnes & Noble, at Kobo from Canada, which is it's not just Canada. Kobo is international. But Kobo is actually one of my, I think it's my second biggest market or might be my third now. I haven't really run the numbers lately. You can get them at uh, via Tolino, which is a German and European sort of uh, system, which is similar to the Nuke for Barnes and Noble. Noble, and you can get them at Drive Through Fiction. <laughs> yes, fiction, I already mentioned great, them on this yes. yeah. Drive Through Fiction is a great market for me, especially for the sword and sorcery stuff and the pulpy stuff because they are gaming. They mostly sell games. This month, I think I sold like maybe five times as much at, at Drive Through Fiction as I sold at Amazon. 
Also, the people at Drive to Fix, they usually buy the whole series. Amazon, it's sometimes someone buys the whole series or trinkles, but <laughs> Drive Through, it's always like, oh, someone bought the whole series. They <laughs> <laughs> just had that happen today with a brand new, actually two brand new books, which only had been published barely 24, not even 24 hours yet. And I said, wow, someone found them and bought them. I don't know how this even works. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's wonderful. And it's so good to look outside of Amazon. You know, it's, I know too many people who almost begrudgingly, but just kind of go, well, that's the ecosystem. System. It's like, no, 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 there's stuff outside. <laughs> there's stuff outside and it's not you know, just tiny fish, you know? No. Yeah. I mean, uh, drive-through fiction is small, but there's a big market for me. Also, it's gone mm. now, but there was a romance-focused one, which was a good fit for anything which was vaguely romancy. So there are all sorts of other ecosystems. I mean, the thing that most people are tied to Amazon because of the Kindle Unlimited, which is their library. I'm not in Kindle Unlimited. And a lot of people I know make a lot of money with Kindle Unlimited. But um, kind of unlimited pace by the page. And since most of mine are short, and it's usually just a few pennies per, per thing, so if it's just one income stream, I don't mind getting the few pennies because they add up. But if it's a main income stream, sorry, no. I did not uh, not put that all the money in there to get maybe what a pro-paying market would pay for, like maybe three words. So... I'm not. Uh, I'm not doing this. Well, exactly, exactly. I mean, your your labor has value and should not. The output of your labor should not be treated. Once again, we come back to my thinking of it as being sold like ham. You know, by the pound, uh, which is the Kindle Unlimited approach that certainly has made me a little wary. Okay, well, thank you for those insights, Cora, and for spending this time with me today. I really appreciate it. I'd like to wrap up by not only asking where can people find you online and what do you have coming up next, a good old standard podcast exit questions, but also, uh, as we've covered, you know, you write in a wide variety of genres and do uh, all kinds of cool stuff. Maybe we can put a pin on this by having you tell our listeners, what, broadly speaking, makes a Cora Bueller story? So what is you know, one of the key qualities that your work brings? The characters are often outsiders, which is, of course, why I fit well with uh, thought and sorcery. But also the characters in the other stories are also quite often outsiders in the science fiction stories or the things. There's usually, um, there's, uh, my characters are not really loners. Even if they start out at loners, they always um, get, a, if it's a series, they always gather a supporting cast. There's usually a bit of romance, not, not too much. So it's not, ex well, I do have a few pure romancy stories mostly Christmassy stuff, but uh, but just, just a pinch of romance. But they have, um, in general, regular relationships. They have friends, they have family members, and they also acquire a supporting cast. All of them do. Even the ones who are supposed to be lone-wandering barbarians eventually get a supporting cast. Um, yes, there's humor mostly, but there's also, they can be quite, I'm not grim dark, but they can be quite grim, my stories. I'm, for some reason, I'm really good at writing torture and execution scenes. So yes, you will find characters threatened with uh, terrible death. Mostly, I don't usually go, I don't kill them most of the time because I still need them, but uh, yeah. <laughs> you will find, well, obscure historical references to obscure German history, which uh, most people will not have heard of. Because, hey, I can plunder it. It's there. And it's uh, not uh, always the same. Oh, it's the Tudors in space again. <laughs> or it's the Roman Empire in space again. So I'm doing different things. Oh, yes, and there's always food. I love cooking. I love baking. And I love writing about food. And sometimes there's even recipes. <laughs> not in the Sword and Sorcery story so far. I haven't done that yet. I would, I would love to see a Sword and Sorcery recipe, though. <laughs> yeah, I, might, I might, might do one eventually with a recipe. It's also usually, what do people do? Oh, they eat. And then I described, I just put uh, speculas or speculatios, uh, holiday cookies. Was um, uh -huh. 
I mean, you know, Remco and Remco van Straten and Angeline Adams, uh, you've interviewed them. Yep. We were talking online. It was um, about uh, Speculatius or Speculas cookies. Speculas is the Dutch name. Speculatius is the German one. And sort and sorcery. And it was like a challenge. Oh, I will put them in a sort and sorcery story. So it did. Oh, they're the sacred cookies baked only for very special purposes. And if you don't know them, they are flat spiced gingerbread type cookies, which oh, uh, nice. with images stamped on top of them. Usually it's St. Nicholas and a windmill and an elephant. And of course, the sort and saucy version has like Xulu and Shogos <laughs> and a headless man and woman with big breasts. <laughs> I, don't really want, I don't really want those cookie forms because I think, okay, it would be so lovely to have these cookies. Well, what a fun way that could be to preserve, uh, coming back to something we, we talked at the very top of this, those pulp covers that were you were finding on the internet years ago. What if what if a spider uh, cookie, <laughs> you know, what if it's a shadow <laughs> cookie, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, a Brundridge, you know, spicy cover or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> That would have been fun. Yeah, that's what you get when you read my stuff. And that's, um, it ranges all over the time, even in one series. Some of the stories can be very intense. Some of them are more humorous uh, and some are quieter, but... Um, for the Two Sword and Sorcery series, um, the Turvok series is more lighthearted. It occasionally goes into darker stuff. I think the one that you read was a little bit darker. Not that way, yeah. But it's mostly lighthearted banter. It's more, if you like Fritz Leiber, you will probably like Turvok. And the uh, Korvalds are more intense. They're more like Howard and um, C.L. Moore. So if you like them, you might like Korval. Korval is actually a pretty good guy. He doesn't really want to hurt people, so he does if he has to. The Kerbals were basically were born out of my wish to, and I always liked the Conan as King stories, but there are only very few of those. Only a handful of Cull stories and three Conan as King stories. I always wanted more, so I thought like, okay, why don't I write a similar character? But Turvok really doesn't want to be king, and he's not the type, and his Grey Mouser character, Meldum, really shouldn't be put in charge of anything. <laughs> well, there you go, though. Classic motivation for writing is making more of the stories you want. Yeah. Okay, so what would be the uh, place people should look for you online? Well, um, that's corabulat.com, C-O-R-B-U-H-L-E-R-T.com. That's where you can find my blog, which has earned me two Hugo nominations so far. And um, that's also where you can find my books. Also, I have a site called pegasus-pulp.com which is a publishing site, which is uh, mostly about books and occasionally roundups. Yes, I'm, I blog at Galactic Journey regularly, where you can find me. That's uh, galacticjourney.org. I'm usually on once a month. Just uh, drop by anyway if you want to learn all the news as they happen and also science fiction as it develops in the 1960s. I mean, we are just the sword and sorcery boom of the 1960s is about to go into overdrive. Mm -hmm. Um, the new wave is, uh, I think it's still building up, but it's about to crest. Um, Dangerous Visions comes out later this year, the Dangerous Visions anthology. So, yes, it's um, a really fascinating time. And of course, you can also see the um, 1960s and the various social movements ramping up and also the unrest of the 1960s. Right. And I've discovered a lot of really interesting stuff through following you on Twitter. What's your handle on there again? That's Cora Bulat, uh, simply at twitter.com. So it's, uh, again, my name, C-O-R-A-B-U-H-L-E-R-T. Well, excellent. Well, I will link to all of those in the show notes, so it's uh, making it even easier for people to find you. I strongly recommend them uh, to do it. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today, Cora. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to further conversations, uh, whether audio like this or uh, back on the good old Western Discord. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with me today.
thanks for having me and uh, it was great being here and yes i'm always i'm an eager listener of your podcast yours is one i found so many great podcasts via interviewing podcasters <laughs> podcasters who are yoga eligible and uh, you're one of my regular listens now so thanks for having me oh thank you Cora. take care bye 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 so i'm writing a novel features original music by gloria guns and is hosted by yours truly oliver brackenbury if you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. Bonus points if you record yourself and send me an MP3 I can cut into the show. Doesn't have to be fancy, using your phone is fine. Just keep it clear and concise. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, and checking out patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Patrons get to be thanked in the final novel, listen to episodes of the podcast a week early, and even enjoy a bonus podcast called So I Wrote a Novel, where I read and comment on chapters of previous works, starting with my first novel, Junkyard Leopard. Thanks for hanging out with me, and Cora, and I'll see you soon. <laughs> <laughs>